primary and secondary water scarcity. A lot of food loss and food waste. And there was an increasing demand for food. Of the pollution and water being used for agriculture. And that also creating problem for agricultural production. Might be compromised due to various issues. These might be, that can be easily fixed. But the sheer scale of some problems and need to replace the infrastructure makes them sometimes very difficult to manage in almost real time as the need arises. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. My name is Kyle King. I'm the Managing Director of Capacity Builder International. And welcome to our next roundtable discussion from the Capacity Builder International's community of practice. And we do these every month on various topics that are appealing to the idea of resilience. And so thanks for joining us today as we're going to be talking about innovating for resilience and panel on food and water security. Food and water security are fundamental concerns that affect communities worldwide. With increasing challenges posed by climate change, population growth, and urbanization, the need for innovative solutions to ensure the availability of clean water and nutritious food has become more critical than ever. In the face of these pressing issues, our panel discussion today aims to bring together experts from diverse backgrounds to shed light on sustainable practices, recent innovations, policy implications, and actionable steps that individuals and communities can do towards a more food and water secure future. Now, our first panelist today is going to be Professor William Chin, the Michael Pham Endowed Professor and Director of Food Science and Technology at Nanyang Technological University. He is a leading innovator in food technology, zero food waste processing, and food circular economy. He is also the Director of Singapore Agri-Food Innovation Lab, SAIL is the acronym, and the Scientific Director of Singapore Future Ready Food Safety Hub otherwise known as FRESH, as the acronym. Our second panelist is Dr. Roman Tanlich from the team's Regional Director for Africa and Associate Professor at the Faculty of Pharmacy at Rhodes University in South Africa. Dr. Tanlich's background in biotechnology led him to develop low-cost and decentralized sanitation technologies. He then shifted his focus to disaster management to address water, sanitation, and hygiene challenges in developing countries and developed new teaching and research tools for public health, disaster risk reduction, and development. And our third panelist is Dr. Ashok Swain, a professor from and head of department for the Department of Peace and Conflict Research. He is the UNESCO Chair on International Water Cooperation and the Director of Research School of International Water Cooperation at Uppsala University. He is also the founding editor-in-chief of Environment and Security Journal, jointly published by Sage Publishing and Environmental Peacebuilding Association. And as your moderator today, I'm Kyle King, as I already mentioned, the founder and managing director of Capacity International. I'll be facilitating the discussion. And without further ado, let's jump right into the topics that we'll be addressing today. So first we have, of course, the first topic is on circular economy and waste reduction. Now, in terms of the circular economy and waste reduction, obviously the circular economy principles offer a transformative approach to address the challenges of food security and create a more sustainable future. Innovative approaches, policies, and technologies are explored to address these challenges. And this discussion and what we're going to hear from our panelists today really encourages experts to explore the circular economy strategies for addressing waste reduction and promoting sustainable resource management. So in this topic of circular economy and waste reduction, I'll first turn it over to Professor Chin to provide some insight from a food security perspective. Professor Chin, over to you. Hi. Good morning, good evening, everyone. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, Kyle, for the kind invitation. Also, in, I'd like to start with some of brief summary of what we have been doing in Singapore. As you know, Singapore is a small city state importing more than 90% of the food from 170 countries. And uh, so in peacetime, this uh, food import has been 
pretty smooth, but uh, now with external changes in the external environment, like for example, global warming, COVID-19 pandemic, and also the, the war in Ukraine, uh, these have made this uh, supply chain and then the food security very volatile. And, and so if we look at the traditional way of producing food, we typically see a linear way of this uh, food supply chain and the food value chain. And uh, this has certain uh, drawback. First is uh, the people work in silo. Farmers, they only do whatever they are good at. And then the supply chain, they just uh, move the food along. And so they, no one talk to each other. And then there's a lot of, in the process, it generally a lot of food loss and food waste. And there was an increasing demand for food. And also, in addition to the changes in the external environment, we also have, we also have this uh, growing world population with demand more food. So all this make this linear food economy model not sustainable. So what we do is actually to sort of uh, develop simple innovation to improve the current food system and in the process sort of create this uh, food circular economy. Why is the food circular economy important? Because if we can reduce the food waste and food loss to uh, a larger extent, that actually put a lot less pressure on the on the food production level. In fact, uh, as estimated by Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, if globally we can reduce food waste and food loss to zero, there's actually no need to worry too much about the demand for food. So therefore, this lies the importance and impact on the redu reducing food waste. And uh, so I think I roughly is maybe briefly explain our, uh, some of the innovation we have developed in Singapore. It's not just for Singapore. I think some of these urban solutions and the food security economy model can be sort of shared with other countries, other mega cities, because increasingly a lot of people will be actually moving to the urban area to, to sort of aspire for a better life. So urban solution may be a very important option for the future the food system. Anyway, okay, thank you, Professor Chin. So, Dr. Swain, what are your thoughts on circular economy and waste reduction from your, your field in terms of water security? I think the, we need to, I'm more interested in the water issues. Of course, uh, water and food very closely related and food is the directly affects the security in many ways than unless you have this huge water scarcity. I think, Professor Chin, we described in Singapore's water issue, oh, food issue. But I, I was 20 years back advising Singapore government when Singapore government was with the Malaysia. The water issue came up, came up, and that is the time how the circular economy also in the water import and export works. And that is the time also Singapore developed in the new water, which was quite a I mean, a massive revolution, how you can really change the wastewater to drinking water and the prime minister, then Singapore prime minister, drinking it. Um, of course, uh, you know, that was the time. But now I think we need to realize there is a big difference exists between the developed country or country which like uh, Singapore with the technology and huge resources and, you know, well, that they can really, if they do have money and technology and wishes, they can change the polluted water. Like I live in Sweden. Sweden used to have also the huge water pollution in the river system because of the pepper and pulp industry. The pepper and pulp industry production has increased six to seven times more, but you, you will see the pollution has decreased to almost zero now. So how this can be, so that's some things which is 
you see in the developed industrialized country, those who have the resources and willingness to invest in it. Whereas the problem comes in the developing countries where the water has been extremely polluted, most of the polluted water being used for agriculture, and that also creating problem for agricultural production. In many cases, the water is not even good enough to produce agricultural production. And there is, uh, of course, we can talk about whether they do have resources or they do have a technology to go for it or how they can be assisted. There is also difference exist even if you have a willingness or not. Like take, for example, I mean, the Israel has the huge technological development, how to really better use the water for agricultural purpose. I'm not getting into the Israeli water because that's another issue we are not getting discussed that, but nobody can deny that Israel has got massive progress in using the water in a much more smarter way for agriculture. And that can be, if Israel can do in that kind of climate, that kind of places and can be agricultural powerhouse, why not others? So I think it's a, it's a somehow we need to see whether the priority is there or not. So it's a political priority is extremely important, as I think, to get this moving, both in the developed countries and developing countries, but the developing countries is much more because you need to reallocate resources. You need to put a number of political capital behind it. Uh, as I keep on saying, we do have science, we do have knowledge, we do have economy, but it's the lack of political will which is really making this a kind of priority arrangement. Where do you do it? But we also see that there are certain other challenges which the developing countries can face. But unless we do that, unless you need to master the you know possibilities to reuse the water in a better way for agriculture to all industrial to other purposes, municipal purposes. The water is going to be scarce. Water is already scarce. Water scarcity is not something happening in future. It is there. So we need to, you know, see the change of mindset. You, the water is not coming from the. It's not the God's gift. God's gift is everything. So it's not only water is the God's gift. So it depends what can, how much really we are prepared to put our resources and also tell the people that what it is worth for and how we really need to find the ways to better manage it. Thanks, and I think that the Israel case is a very interesting example. I mean, Dr. Tanlish, coming over to you and, and looking at that from a developing country perspective, obviously there's more developed nations, they have resources, they could apply it to some of these issues. What about in terms of developing nations that you've been working in? What are you seeing from your perspective? So I really like what was just said about the change in mindset we are really seeing that in the Southern Hemisphere, specifically on the African continent, South Africa has had quite a few changes in the climate, uh, not, so, not so much when it comes to overall climate itself, but on the uh, precipitation, for example. Since about 2015, we've had persistent droughts. South Africa and Southern Africa is not the only place. California was also in a drought for quite a long time. What we have actually seen is that the drought itself has become a permanent stay of affairs. And it seems that we are actually not talking about drought anymore. We're actually starting to talk about aridification. And this has major impacts on primary and secondary water scarcity, primary being caused by the climate and the amount of precipitation you get, and the secondary by the fact that many times the delivery of that water and its treatment to the population and to various sectors of economy like food production might be compromised due to 
various issues. These might be the outdated or aging infrastructure, bursts of pipes, very basic things that can be easily fixed, but the sheer scale of some problems and need to replace the infrastructure makes them sometimes very difficult to manage in almost real time as the need arises and pipe breaks occur. On the other hand, what we have seen in South Africa has been we've had two cities now come very close to what we call a day zero, where the supply of the drinking water would have simply run out because there was not enough raw water coming into the system. Cape Town is a very good and very well-known case, which happened in 2018. They have managed to avoid it by the sheer last luck and precipitation coming in. We are currently seeing something similar on the Indian Ocean coast in a place called Kabecha or Port Elizabeth, where the it is very likely that day zero on a scale of a city of about 1, 1. 1.5 million people is likely to occur sometime later this winter. We're also seeing something similar happening, for example, in Mexico and Monterey. This was, I think, last year. So what we're seeing, for example, in uh, in the country that I'm based in is that rerouting of drinking water or raw water resources is underway. We have piping, for example, what you would maybe see for... Uh, natural gas or oil in EU and North Northern Hemisphere, you're starting to see something similar happen for water resources, where areas that have water use the sources to divert certain volumes towards areas that are scarce. And specifically, if you look at the south- southeastern part of Southern Africa, and South Africa specifically, this is a very agricultural area. Citrus fruit is grown here. And if it wasn't for supplies from central parts of the uh, of South Africa and also parts of the northern parts of the country, such as Johannesburg, which is one of our major metropolitan areas, a lot of the water that they get is basically done through transfer schemes from the kingdom of Lesotho. So I think this is going to be a very more and more like a feature of water supply, management, treatment, and also food production that... We will see with climate change a lot of precipitation coming in small and very drastic events, floods, downpours, where 24 hours you would see one year's worth of precipitation. We will have to find a way to store that water, treat it, and then divert it into areas that otherwise don't get rain. And I think that's going to be something that will have to become a very important part of water, food, and also disaster risk management in the 21st century. Thanks. Thanks, Ronald. Appreciate that. So that actually brings us into our next question, really, which is about sustainable water management. Of course, the challenges with water scarcity, just like you were talking about, Dr. Tanlish, you know, degradation either due to population, urbanization, climate change, or a call for sustainable practices. Now, innovative approaches, like what what are we seeing in terms of innovative approaches or policies and technologies that explore to address these challenges? I know, Dr. Swain, you had, you had mentioned that in Sweden, production has gone up by six or seven times, but actual waste has been stayed the same as in the previous period. So that's quite interesting to explore. And of course, the goal should encompass you know equitable distribution, efficient utilization, as we talk about getting more arid lands and territories, resulting in resilient safeguards of ecosystems and meeting future needs. I think all of these topics we sort of just just you know touched on in our first sort of round but professor Chen, i'll bring it back over to you in terms of sustainable water management obviously your focus is on food security but what are you seeing in terms of sustainable water management should i let the daughter swine stuff first can uh, <laughs> you sure can yeah thank you the sustainable water management is something which is again a number of things involved as i said we do have 
in uh, ways that what sort of water we are looking at it. And then whether it is sustainable managed or not, then we can really think of. Like I was giving example of Israel. So in Israel, if you look at the water is being managed, of course, if the what Israel has, that water is managed well. But whether the where how the Israel gets this water, that's another question. So I think it all depends uh, because, as you know, there have been uh, lots of. I mean, we are only using two to three percent of water, which is also that is fresh water, and we are talking about the fresh water, most of the cases, and most of the fresh water also internationally said. I mean, the 40% to 42% of fresh water we're using, that comes from the international sources, international rivers. We don't own it. And those are the things, of course, there have been different agreements, but those agreements are not always in the, you know, in a, in a, in a very rare cases, particularly in Europe, you will find there are some kind of, all the basin countries are part of it because it has been often being run by the powerful countries or the upstream basins are in control of it and that is going on so i think it's a it's the transboundary water and the transboundary groundwater we must also realize that the transboundary groundwaters is not exactly our being which is the major source of water supply and because it is it's a below the ground you don't see it it's too less being discussed to less being agreed upon how the countries will share it. Out of the thousands of transboundary groundwater, only four to six agreement exist. There are no agreements also. So I think in that sense, we have to look at it, what kind of water we are talking about and what kind of economy these waters are engaged or what waters are used for. Like we, of course, there have been possibilities of desalinizing water. The desalination of water, before I go for the desalination water, Professor Tandlik was talking about getting the water from to the South Africa from the pipe sources. I think these plants are there from the Jambeji River, Jambeji adequate plant, which is there, which is South Africa is not even a part of the basin to divert this water. We have this, uh, I mean, with the pipelines. And these kind of grand pipelines ideas are all over the world. Because of the political reasons, they have not been implemented, but there are within the basin, there has been a number of transport taking place. And I was also explaining the Malaysia to water to Singapore or mainland China to Hong Kong. So there are many of these explanations. And then we are talking about the saline water or the how desalinization will be. And the desalination is something which we can, and for what it is being used for. If it is only for industrial purposes and municipal water use purposes, and the countries are like a Middle East or the United States or part of Southern Europe, possibly it is okay. But that also creates other problems. So I think when we are talking about the sustainable water management, we must figure out which water we are talking about, which economy we are looking at, what sort of use it is big. But for the for this discussion, it's more on the food production, isn't it? So the food production issue is also highly securitized. Like take for example, Saudi Arab, 20 years back, was extracting water in the middle of the desert and producing wheat, which are, at that time, $2 billion spending this, extracting the water from underground and producing wheat, which they could buy the twice the amount of wheat from the international market. But this is, again, a kind of national prestige, national you know, food security idea are there. So I think what we are doing, I mean, I'm giving a long 
because I think it's a much more complicated things. But what is happening actually that our water, wherever our water is, the geographical boundaries creating problem for the having a sustainable water management for food productions. The places where the water is available, we have agricultural land where you are supposed to produce food, isn't it? That's what you can do it and then we can really, but those kind of ideas are not coming. I will finally, I will talk about the Nile River. When the Nile River has become a major issue of contention, the Egypt, which is producing its agricultural with the Nile water, Nile is de- Egypt is dependent on 90% of the Nile water, but most of the water for agricultural purposes and producing wheat or the producing all the agricultural productions in the middle of the desert, isn't it? So the best thing would be probably to do this in Sudan or Ethiopia, and then Egypt can buy that even though for agricultural products. But there is no trust. There is no trust that these countries will produce agricultural food and give to Egypt. So I think it's the real problem age. We are lacking regional, local, and also international trust factor where we should produce. We are not exactly using food production for the water where it's supposed to be the best possible production of the food could be given the water and the you know climate and the land is available. And I think once we realize that, probably there is a lot of problems sorted out. Sorry for not giving you a very simple, straightforward answer, but it is quite complex. And when we are talking about the water, we are not mentioned which water we are talking about. No, absolutely. I think that's a that's actually a very good answer. Highlights a lot of issues in terms of the actual, you know, there's an aspect of political sustainability, right? And so there's an aspect of, you know, the international agreements, as you're mentioning, national agreements and that trust that has to take place. And it, it also comes back to the first topic we were talking about, which is political investment, you know, political ownership, and then investing in these sorts of technologies to be able to enhance food and water security. But uh, Dr. Tanlish, Roman, I'll come back over to you for some additional input on this topic of sustainable water management. So I really like what we just said, because it does highlight one important issue, and that is that the water cycle is interconnected with a lot of other national, regional, and international issues that we're dealing with. And ultimately, what we what we have to realize is that the water cycle itself is being extensively studied. We know that there is a lot of work going on in understanding, for example, interaction between surface water and groundwater, so that you can balance the resource, the extraction of the volumes of water in a particular area without impeding or negatively impacting the hydrological cycle, meaning that you don't extract too much water and then damage the system in the long term. What I think is also becoming more and more important uh, to realize is that the water, food, and energy nexus are connected. And water cycle and food production are intertwined in a way that prioritization of allocation of water to different uses, for example, industry, human consumption, food production, and so on, must be carefully balanced so that we assign water as a critical resource to human survival. based on principles of justice, and I think this was already alluded to by the previous speaker, meaning that people and the growing population of the earth must be equitably given access to water, food, and other essential resources. But at the same time, we must strike balance that all the sectors taken into consideration when making these allocations. Nile River is a really good example of this, and I really like that it was mentioned. We also, on the other side, need to for example, increase resilience at the very basic level, which means household and individual citizens, where we can, for example, encourage more 
water efficient practices in food production. For example, there is a lot of movement now in some scientific literature towards working on closed systems where you would have something like aquaculture at the household level where a food garden and a small fish farm, we can say, allocated to a household. It is a closed system which requires a certain amount of certain volume of water. But at the same time, that system is closed. And once it's up and running, it can increase the security of water and food supply for that household. There are many other initiatives that that are quite encouraging. A lot of uh, countries are encouraging, for example, grey water recycling, where water from the domestic wastewater without any input from toilets is actually reused in non-essential services or uses where drinking water would otherwise be used, for example, garden irrigation, flushing of toilets, things like that. So these are balance between these international and small scale initiatives, are, I think, important. And they also definitely point towards a very transdisciplinary nature of which means many points of view and many kind of data and inputs must be put on the table when making decisions about water allocations and food so that we achieve just exploitation and usage of these resources. Thank you. Thanks for that. And Professor Chen, anything to add? The two previous speakers already mentioned very eloquently the importance of better utilizing water. I just wanted to add on that actually all these current crises in the changing environment actually force people to think more, more deeply, so to look for solutions. One example is that... As I mentioned earlier, the traditional way of farming is like the same way of using water, using fertilizer. And not just, just now I mentioned there are a lot of food weeds and food loss generated in, in, in the traditional way of farming, but equally true is for water. So, you know, the people don't really care about how much water they should. Periodically, they just fix timing, fix amount, they just irrigate the farm. And increasingly, this is not optimal because uh, agriculture and food production actually use a lot of water. And when we th- when we think about globally, there's only about 1% of fresh water available for the entire world population, not just for the food production, but also equally important for our own needs. So there's a very critical to sort of um, monitor the water usage and understand the need when to when to use water, when not to. As for this, I, I'm very happy to see that the food system actually is is so comprehensive and, and can be very well integrated in terms of technology adoption. So in this case, a lot of sensor development have been uh, put in place to monitor the need for water usage and, and so on. So this is one example you see that when we deploy the technology sensibly actually we can achieve a much greater efficiency and, and to to follow up on, on the two speakers suggestion i would say that um, when we have a limited amount of fresh water for for the entire world to use for food for human consumption maybe it's also time to think of uh, out, think out of the box look into seawater because uh, we are surrounded i mean even when we talk about the, the surface area, I mean, the, the ocean occupies so much more, and then this is a huge reservoir for us to type on. I'm not just talking about desalination, but also thinking of promoting some of the new ideas on, on producing food on the high sea. So I think uh, this would actually help us achieve a better and more efficient food system years to come. 
Okay, very interesting. I have actually not heard of that, producing food on the high seas. So that should be quite an interesting topic to explore at a later date. We can certainly do that. But that actually brings us over into the next question, which is, since we do have a scarcity of water, then what is really about the innovative water treatment and purification? And sort of what are the innovations here that we're looking at that can help our societies with water security? So, I mean, access to clean water and safe water is vital for human health, sustainable development, and environmental well-being. Um, the need for innovative water treatment solution arises from challenges like pollution. I mean, there's been a number of cases, even in the United States, in terms of water pollution. Uh, you know, we can most famously sort of Flint, Michigan and other areas that have had sort of water issues in, in recent years. And challenges such as emerging contaminants, limited freshwater resources that we were just mentioning and ensuring access and maintenance of clean water. So... What can we discuss here about some of the, the groundbreaking technologies or revolutionary, revolutionary sort of efforts that are being undertaken in terms of water quality approaches and and how can we identify new strategies to ensure that there's global access and preservation of clean water? So Dr. Foyne, I think we'll come back to you as the one of our resident water experts, and then you can kick off this part of the conversation. I think one of the heads, uh move quite ahead in providing, I mean, we must admit that there have been, like you are talking about United States and Flint, Michigan, but there have been, I have been before to California or New York, you couldn't drink the water from the tap. Now, at least you could drink the water from the tap and I could even survive living so long in Sweden and go drink that water. So that, I mean, things have changed. Many countries you see that even in Germany, when uh, in the early 90s, you couldn't drink the water from the tap, but now anywhere you can, you know. So there has been some changes, but of course, we have a huge problem of providing safe, clean water to people. And that is creating a major health crisis besides other things. I mean, I am in the department, which is world famous for collecting data on how many people die in the war, okay, or in the various war and civil wars. And I'm the one does research on water. So I need to put myself in these war researchers that I'm relevant. I used to put on my door that how many people die every year because of the drinking bad water. So, you know, so, the, so of course, now people know that that's a bad water is a, something which is uh, kills so many people. So it, I don't need to put that on my door. But I think it is, it's a fact, it goes on. But I think it's, it's also, there have been a number of ways, the technology out there, there are possibilities if the, but there is a corruption, there is a uh, lack of, again, though I must tell that there is a lack of political will, that this is not that the water cannot be given and water cannot be clean, water cannot be given. There are legal challenges, like in some places, even the urban slums, where People want the piped water, but the states are not interested to say, give them the piped water because that will give them the legal rights of staying there or somehow they can say that they have been taking. So it's a, it's a much more complex problem. I mean, it might look quite easy, but it's a, in the unmanaged places or where there is a unmanaged urban centers or even the rural areas, which are not exactly you can easily access. There is an energy problem. So you probably will face this kind of how to really provide the clean water. But that should be when it is called the basic human rights for the people to have the clean water and proper sanitation, it's the state's responsibility. It's no way state can say that this is the business houses do, this is the NGOs will do it, or the people will have to do it. The state's basic responsibility is to provide the clean water 
and proper sanitation possibilities to everyone. That's the basic human rights. And if the state fails to provide that, then I think the problem starts from there. The authors can play the supporting role, but I think where the states are really, even the developed countries, I mean, Flint, Michigan, I mean, and there are not only one Flint. I mean, you know, you will find there are many areas in the United States, in Canada, in some parts in Europe, also, you won't be able to get this water. And I think here, there is no explanation because it's, it's just the state has failed. In the developing countries, it has not been given the priority. So I think it's a, it's a, it should be prioritized. But I think we do have the technology. We do have the possibilities to provide the very easy, safe water to people. But I think it's a corruption, legal problems, and politics, which are the three things which I think is the, it's not the science, it's not the research, which is the problem. No, no, thanks for that. I think that's very interesting. I mean, it, you can draw, and I like the way you sort of provide that perspective. In developed nations, it's a choice. And in other underdeveloped nations, it's an issue of being provided the tools and the capabilities to, to make that choice. And so I, I like the way that's, that's phrased, because it's a conscious decision to invest or not invest with more developed nations. And, and you know, take actions to make sure that you're fulfilling your responsibility as a state to your population. Uh, so, Roman, let's come back over to you for your perspective on water treatment and purification and innovation in this area. Thank you. I I really agree with everything that was just said. The political will and the corruption are a major problem. The other issue is that the the movement and migration of populations is becoming intertwined with access to resources and the effective way of managing. It is sometimes quite difficult to predict how you're going to manage the supply of drinking water, for example, building a reticulation um, system and supply to an area. If there is a lot, especially on the border between or the boundary between rural and urban areas, because most of our economic opportunities are now in the urban areas. So the migration is only increasing from rural to urban areas. And many times this is quite difficult to manage over time, especially on a short space of time. And this complicates the supply of basic services like water and sanitation. The other angle which I would stress is quite important in this aspect is that indigenous knowledge, which is held by people that have traditionally resided, for example, in rural areas, is becoming more significant than before, I think, because effective management of water resources, optimization of farming techniques uh, that have been developed over extended and long periods of time are gaining more and more momentum because they can provide some solutions to the challenges and allocation of resources like water that we see. The other point I would like to make is that uh, research um, is driven immensely on the areas of nanotechnology and treatment of water using that, that covers removal of microorganisms, emerging contaminants and others, but also what is changing in the research area, which is quite exciting and actually quite empowering, is that many times scientists and the communities that are not impacted, but that require solutions for provision of water and food are working more and more collaboratively to provide solutions to these, for example, to how much water to allocate for human consumption, to food production, and how much to allocate to natural resources. For example, uh, Many times communities are becoming custodians of wetlands and catchments that they extract their water from because these provide essential services to them. For example, resources from forests that are inside the catchments 
that can provide raw materials for economic activity that the community derives their income from. That is partnerships between scientists, governments, and communities around what we now call ecological uh, services that the ecosystem provides to the community are becoming more and more where the community becomes a custodian and manager with support by the government and scientists. And that way, the resource such as forest catchments and so on can be optimized so all the needs of the environment and also the human population living there can be met. Thank you very much. Some good insights there. And so, Professor Chen, coming back to you in terms of innovations in water treatment and purification, what is sort of the impact in food and the food industry and, and food security itself? If we can get, obviously there's a correlation here in some form or fashion that the more that we're able to more efficiently you know, process water and treat water and purify water, the more we'll be able to reuse it and then bring that over to the food sector and things like that. So what is the impact here that you're seeing? And is there anything on your radar in terms of food security? Well, the two gentlemen have pointed out a very significant advancement in the technology and how to sort of maximize the water allocation and utilization. But I just, uh, I'm just not so sort of a little bit concerned about the cost of uh, the energy. You know, all these technologies can be very energy demanding. And uh, I would say that the proper allocation as one of the panelists pointed out, uh, maybe how we carefully use the available water resources, that will be the key moving forward. I think uh, in terms of food production, there are a lot of uh, data science, you know, sensors, as we discussed earlier, and also maybe some of the urban solutions can be explored to sort of see how we can develop urban farming that utilize less water. So I think uh, you efficiency of using water will be the key factor moving forward in terms of uh, ensuring food production probably. And then uh, there's uh, just now I have also a suggestion on the producing food on the high sea. So that's another possibility. And not, not mission impossible, but it is doable. Yeah, but we'll see. Yeah. Also, also there has been a lot of, uh, please correct me, but I think there is a lot of uh, uh, technological development, how to use the semi-saline water. I mean, when I was growing up close to Bay of Bengal, my grandfather was that time growing rice with the Bay of Bengal semi-saline water. And that disappeared with the new HI, what you call it, high-yielding variety rice coming in. But now I think those kind of old traditional rice and other cultivations, which used to be on the semi-saline water, can be also being developed. Is, it, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think uh, this is where the technology implementation ado- adoption come to come to into the picture again. Here we talk about how to modify the the, the plant and the crops to adapt to different water conditions. But we're not talking about GM food per se in terms of what we are going to eat, but how the plant and crops grow in the different water conditions. There's absolutely a very important area that, that is coming along too. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, th- I I really like the last comment. There is a lot of, one of the main drivers of our understanding about how to adapt to climate change and its effect in more broadly and specifically with water and food production will be that a lot of the plants that are considered critical to an ecosystem or food chain, there's a lot of investment going into genetic analysis, sequencing and understanding what are the factors that control the survival and the adaptability of specifically stable food crops, such as maybe wheat, rice, and things like that, are going on. 
there is a lot of government investment and a lot of capacities being built pretty much across the world in sequencing and genomic analysis, which can then allow us to improve food production systems as well. Thanks for that, Roman. And it, that conversation just strikes me and makes me remember that, you know, what is old is new again. And then maybe with the current technology we have, that we can better understand why the old systems worked and then adapt them to a new environment. So very interesting discussion. Um, so we're pending up into almost a full hour now. So I just want to head over to the Q&A really quick. And we do have a couple of questions that have come in. And the first one is, I think, really just about public education resources and outreach initiatives. So for people that are like in the United States, a very sort of large country, and then maybe water security is not the dominant factor in, in their sort of daily news, what publication or what public education outreach initiatives are recommended to find out more information about water scarcity, water security, food security, and and the, and the public domain? Does anybody have any good resources there, Dr. Swain? We'll start with you. I think that has been. I my also I'm a UNESCO chair, and my job is also to spread this education and publish on that. But the the kind of thing like a, like a country like in Sweden. I never studied here, but my kids went to the school. Uh, this this country doesn't need to think at this point of time for the water preservation, but you will see the education system. My kids come home and tell me how to use the water, though I have a, I'm telling the world how to use the water, but they, they have been learning from the school system that how to tell uh, use the water well and sustainably. So those educations are need to be put a curriculum which, uh, I mean, there is a UNESCO recommendation that how the school should be using all the education system, but we don't prioritize that. There was a time, I think it's also people, those who are interested in this field, we should also take it as a mission that we must try to put this knowledge in the young mind. As much as you can you know, because in the universities and we are much more interested in doing research or, you know, more research publications. But I think the real education should be in the school level. In my younger days, I was going around different schools in um, Swedish Sweden, being uh, a project supported by the Green Cross, you know, the Gorbachev's money, which is their Nobel Prize, he put that in the Green Cross. That was actually supporting. And I was going around in the different schools to, uh, in the Swedish schools to also to t teach the students that how the water is important, the importance of water and how the water is important for our society, for our life, for our food and everything. You know, that's because I think the society of the young young mind, unless they will tell them, it's very difficult to do. And that again comes from the state is the main actor here. The education system in most of these countries, particularly the developing countries, has to keep this in mind that this kind of education has to be a comprehensive one, not only a very some kind of you know colonialized version of education, which only teaches you to be an engineer or a doctor or to be a bureaucrat. It has to be also how you should be responsible for the society and the larger world. And I think this is where it comes in. Of course, there have been we or the number of social civil society organizations or the different private schools they can possibly, but there has to be strict instructions from the central system that these are the important, water is an important topic, need to be discussed from the, I mean, the, from the primary level to upwards. And unless that happens, I think say, unless we put that in the students' mind, the kids' mind, that the water is not anymore 
something they have been using traditionally or before, it can be used the same way. Because water is becoming scarce, water is becoming polluted, with more demand. We need to rethink about how we used to think about the water. And I think this is, again, come back to the same kind of questions. Where, how, we, who should really prioritize it? And I think it's a, many countries have prioritized it. As I was giving mention that these countries, those who don't need to, but the countries, those who need to, they are not doing it. And I think that that's where the problem lies. And they have to. And I think the natural disaster, I think as if I look at the question, how the, because that brings out another aspects, how the, because the natural disasters becoming increasing due to climate change, it's becoming much more yearly as well as intensive. I come from a place where, which always either flood or the cyclone, we call it in India. So I have seen how that really destroys your water system. And that's something else. I think that's something we need to realize that in the during the natural disasters time, and I think a questionnaire was asking from the United States side, and there are that's again how you need to remain prepared for it, how long you need to remain prepared for it, how much water supply you need to keep. Those are the practical questions, but they are something, but for specific reasons because of those kind of natural disasters. But then drought situation, that's a different thing. That's a, we we can continue this discussion. It's a longer discussion, but in general, I think. The cool level education on water is extremely important, and the countries, those who should do it, are not doing it. Thank you for that. Um, so, Dr. Tanglish, we'll come over to you for the next question because you mentioned technology before. But do you think it's sort of a solution of wastewater management or water management solution to the problem if developed countries transfer clean water technology to developing countries? Should that technology transfer take place? Thank you. That's a really good point. Yes, it should. And to a large extent, it does already take place. There's a lot of partnerships between what we call North and South or between, for example, Erasmus Plus from the European Union, not making adverts for anything, but it is facilitating mobility between uh, a wide variety of researchers from the EU and uh, countries outside of the EU South Africa is a good example. South American countries are a good example. Arid parts of North Africa are also part of this. So the exchange is critical and it already is going on. Uh, There's also quite a bit of co-development, which means that the collaborations are often going both ways. They're bi-directional. Development of, for example, sensors that were mentioned earlier are being developed in collaboration between, I know there are many South African universities doing it many universities from the European Union. At the same time, you have the international funders such as the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation that are stimulating quite a lot of research into sustainable sanitation, sanitation that takes the human um, waste and actually turns it into products that can be used to uplift communities. So for example, fertilizer, energy source resources, things like that. And those kinds of Grants are available to wide range of researchers from both uh, the developed and the developing world. And then I would maybe close it out with the following thing. We saw a very great deal of collaboration in the genomic sphere 
through the food and agriculture organizations for many years now. And genomic sequencing, for example, so looking at what are the genetic makeups of uh, microorganisms, for example, has only been strengthened during COVID-19. There was a lot of sharing of genomic data. This is not related to this specific topic. I'm just saying that a lot of collaboration is opened up internationally. There's always need for more because uh, the climate changes created conditions that are changing rapidly and we need to the exchange of information must be ongoing exchange of technologies must be ongoing as well and there's always more that we can do but the exchange is going on to quite a large extent thank you thank you for that uh, that's a great answer and so the last question here and dr Schwen, i'll have to come back to you because it's another water related question but um should water be declared a social property by the united nations Water has been, I mean, uh, by just declaring, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, of, of course, it makes some sense. I mean, but the question is, it is a social property, whether the United Nations declares it or not. It's a, it's a property which goes beyond that. Because it has been, I mean, we must say that become part of the human rights. I mean, the, the drinking water and sanitation is is the is a part of the human rights, and I think this is something very important. The water has its, uh, it belongs to the society. It doesn't really belong to the any in in a sense. It's it's not. It doesn't really beyond the economic or political boundary. It must be kind of a possibility for everyone to receive it. But I think we have also limitations. We have a limited water use and how a limited water available in most of the cases. And our there there is a different ways we need to use. There are some profession, some people, some economy will use more, some people, some economy, some society will use less, and how to differentiate that. We need to have every individual must have some possibilities of getting some amount of water, which has to be the human rights. But saying that, you need to run the economy, you need to run the food, system. You need to run all the things which is a part of the larger societal demands. So I think it's to maintain a balance that how we fulfill the basic requirements. I think we go back to the first discussions which started that how a state ensure that every individual in the society has the basic amount of water available to lead a life and lead its economical growth in a manner which is acceptable, okay? Then then the rest we can price, we can manage, or the way we think that how the economic productivity or the food or whatever energy transition we are doing, that might really be the case. So there is no such that everything has to be equal. It is somehow we need to realize that our complexity is large. But I think the most important thing is Every individual has the basic right to have a basic minimum of water, which he or she needs for its survival and well-being. Great. Thank you very much for that. And on that note, we'll go ahead and close out the session for today. Thank you very much for joining us and really appreciate your attendance. And thank you to our panelists for wonderful insights and conversations today around the topics of food and water security. Thanks once again. Thank Thank you. you.